just got to tell you, you know, this has been such an unusual time for us um, in, in the history of our church as well as in the history of the church. And when it seems like the church would be struggling financially, struggling spiritually, we haven't really seen that. Uh, what we've seen is God be faithful. We've seen the gospel be preached around the world through the work of churches across this country and across the world. The gospel has been preached. And so we are excited about that. We're so excited about the, the generosity of our church family. Um, and, uh, and we appreciate you continuing to give because um, just because we're not doing campus ministry doesn't mean we're not doing ministry. And so we appreciate your faithfulness. Uh, and I just got to give you a praise report. I, I think it was maybe in May. Um, you know, we, we always, as we've talked about before, we tithe to missions. And so we have been able to, um, you know, pick up every South Texas district missionary on a monthly basis and partner with them and invest in that ministry. And that's huge because that's around the world. <clears throat> and so, uh, but what often happens is we have more money than missionaries. And that is an incredibly great problem to have. So we, uh, one month, we were able to not only send two offerings to missionaries who just because of scheduling couldn't come and actually be here for a service, but they still needed assistance. We were able to send offerings to two missionaries. We were able to send a large offering to Pleasant Hills Children's Home uh, because their uh, contributions had gone down uh, due to the coronavirus, and so we were able to send them money for food. And two of their graduating seniors needed, uh, the, the South Texas District provides a laptop for every graduating senior. And it costs about $1,000 per kid. Well, there were two of them, and the district was $400 short for meeting that goal. And so we were able to take care of that last amount so those kids got computers. That is because of your faithfulness and your generosity. We're ministering to people that we will never meet face-to-face, but we're investing in the kingdom of God, and there's no greater investment we can make than in the kingdom of God. So thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 18, and that's where we're going to be talking this morning for a few minutes. We've been chronologically studying the life of Christ. So we took the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put them in as, as chronological as possible, and we've been walking through the life of Christ in this series called In His Steps. And uh, we are in, right now, we are almost at the end of Christ's ministry, earthly ministry, and we're almost getting into his final week, which will be a new sermon series we plan on starting this fall. But uh, so Jesus is on his final approach to Jerusalem, and he's, he's on his way meeting people, having conversations, and so there is a lot more immediacy in Jesus' teaching, in his talking to people. So today, we're in Luke chapter 18. The title of the message is called The Wealth Trap. The Wealth Trap. And I want to introduce you to someone. His name is Ray Hushpuppy. Now, I'm not surprised if you haven't heard of this man before or if you think I'm making his name up. I'm not, I promise. But his real name is Ramon Abbas. And Ramon is a Nigerian man who is at the center of a money laundering scheme 
accused of stealing hundreds of millions of dollars. He flaunted his wealth on his Instagram page with pictures of Bentleys, private jets, Louis Vuitton blankets, and a Versace bathrobe embroidered with his nickname, Hush Puppy, across the back. He was arrested along with 11 others, and authorities seized $41 million in cash, 13 luxury cars worth $6.8 million, and phone and computer evidence containing more than 100,000 fraud files and the addresses of nearly 2 million possible victims. To Mr. Hushpuppy, wealth was everything. It was more than just a means of provision. Wealth was a status symbol. He wanted people to see his lifestyle. He wanted people to know he was filthy rich and to be jealous of him. Yet his cars, his yachts, his planes couldn't keep him from being arrested. In fact, it was that he flaunted his wealth so obviously that assisted his own demise. Jesus had an encounter with such a young man in the Gospels. He was a man of wealth and status. And Jesus' warning to him is a good reminder to all of us. Money isn't everything. It's just a tool that, if not used for God's purposes, will destroy you. Let's look at Luke 18. Verse 18 begins, it says, And a ruler came and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we want to look back to last week's sermon real quickly, because in the previous passage, Jesus had just taken children up into his arms, and he blessed them. Then a young man, who was called a ruler, approached Jesus This rich, young ruler had wealth, had status, and probably lacked nothing that money or power could not acquire for him. Since the young man was called a ruler, he was most likely part of the religious system of rulers, the Pharisees. Therefore, he knew the Torah. He knew the law of Moses. He also knew what was called the oral Torah, which were all the commands of the Pharisees that were not written in Scripture, such as washing your hands before you eat. If you remember, Jesus got into a confrontation with the Pharisees about that rule, and the Pharisee says, your disciples are not washing their hands before they eat, thus breaking the commandment, and Jesus says, that's your commandment and not God's. And so there was a difference between the written Torah, the Scripture, and the oral Torah, these made up instructions by the Pharisees. And they weren't bad rules. They just weren't God's word. So Jesus repeatedly confronted the Pharisees over the issue that they treated their own rules on the same level as God's commands. This young man came to Jesus and he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is there something I'm missing? Is there something I've missed in the written Torah or the oral Torah? If you are the Messiah, are you giving a new teaching, 
a new Torah. What do I have to do? And I interpret his question as an honest one because Jesus didn't rebuke him for it. In fact, later on you see that Jesus' response to this young man was one of love and compassion. I believe he sincerely was concerned for his own soul, and he wanted to know what to do about it. So verse 19 in Luke chapter 18, it says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So the first thing Jesus did was he corrected his understanding about what is good. You see, in the English language, we describe things as bad, okay, good, great, greatest. Greatest is the highest. To us, there's nothing better than greatest. For instance, this is the greatest taco. That was the greatest movie. He is the greatest athlete of all time, the GOAT. He's not the goodest athlete of all time. It's the greatest athlete of all time. And if we say something is good, that means it can be improved upon. How was dinner? It was good. Don't say that to your wife, by the way. Don't say that to whoever cooks the food in your family. Say it was the greatest I've ever had. And if under your breath you need to say today, then that's okay. How did you like the movie? It was good. Not great. Definitely not the greatest I've ever seen, but it was good. See, in the Jewish understanding, good means something completely different. It means morally perfect. It means not lacking anything. So when the rich young ruler called Jesus good, he was attributing perfection to Christ. And Jesus wanted to make sure the young man knew what he had just said. By calling Jesus good, he was calling him God. Luke 18, verse 20, Jesus continues. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Jesus replied to this man's questions by listing five of the Ten Commandments, all of which focus on interpersonal relationships. And knowing how Jesus talks to people, this seems like a setup. He was testing the man's heart. He knew what the man's issue was, but he wanted to see if this rich young man could get to it for himself. Verse 21, the young man said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, honestly, when I read this, it comes across a little bit arrogant. This man had to know that to break the law at all is to break all the law. But instead of arrogance, he might have just been naive or he might have been actively in pursuit of obeying the commandments and living life as righteously as possible. Yet he still feels like there's something missing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have 
and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Mark's version of this story, Mark 10, 21, it says that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. This wasn't brotherly love. It wasn't familial love. Mark used the word agapeo. Jesus loved the young man dearly. This indicates that, to me, the young man was genuine and sincere in his request. He really wanted to know, where am I missing the mark? What am I missing? Jesus looked into the man's heart And he saw his idol. He saw the one thing that was at the root of all of his temptations and all of his struggles. He saw who his God really was, his wealth. Jesus told the man that in order to have treasure in heaven, he had to sell all of his possessions, give them all to the poor, and then he could follow him. Now, rabbis encouraged tithing and giving alms to the poor, but they discouraged people from giving everything away because that would impoverish themselves and make them dependent upon the generosity of others. What Jesus asked the man to do here was extreme. However, he tried to eradicate all trace of this man's idolatry to wealth. Suppose that you went to a surgeon with cancer and the treatment was the removal of your liver. And then you said to the surgeon, how about you take only 10% of my liver? The surgeon would look at you confused as if you didn't understand the gravity of the situation. He would say to you, that would leave 90% of a cancerous liver which will spread to other organs. I cannot leave any trace of the cancer. You come back with, okay, 25%. The surgeon would again be dumbfounded at your offer. Seeing his face, you then would say, okay, 40% final offer. The surgeon would reply to you, it's all or nothing. This is the way it is with Jesus. He will not allow other things to take first place in our heart. When he reveals the source of our idolatry, he won't try to remove just 10% of it, 25% of it, or 40% of the problem. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. We cannot follow him 100% and still give our hearts even 1% to an idol. Verse 23, but when the young man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus' words were not what this young man wanted to hear. He had the perfect life. He was wealthy. He was young. He was influential. He was probably good-looking. And Jesus told him all of that was inconsequential to a right standing with God. He must sell everything and become a face in the crowd that followed Jesus. His response was extreme sadness and grief. 
He knew all he had to give up to follow Jesus. What he failed to realize was all he stood to gain. When I was a new convert to Christianity, I was told about all the things I couldn't do and be considered a Christian. I was told I couldn't smoke, I couldn't drink, I couldn't do drugs, I couldn't have sex until I was married. Christianity had been summarized into an infinitely long list of thou shalt nots. I was only told all the things I had to give up for Jesus. A way better sales pitch is to temper the list of don'ts with all the things a person stands to gain by following Jesus Christ. Yes, there are sacrifices that have to be made, but the benefits vastly outnumber and outweigh the cost. Verses 24 through 25 in Luke 18. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may have heard, as I have, a story that Jerusalem has many gates entering the city and that one of those gates is called the needle gate, where camels had to get down on their knees, remove all the packs off of them, and only then could they crawl into the city of God. That sounds interesting, but it's not true. There was no needle gate in Jerusalem. So Jesus was not referring to that. That is something that someone made up. And it sounds really good. Jesus is stressing something here. When Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle in verse 25, Jesus used something called hyperbole, as he did on many occasions. And a hyperbole is an over-exaggeration. So when a teenager, if you had a teenager, you have a teenager, this is a possible conversation that might take place. When they say to you, I've been waiting 15 million years for dinner to be ready, when they've only been waiting 15 minutes, that's a hyperbole. Now, an exaggeration would be, I've been waiting an hour when they've only been waiting 15 minutes. That's an exaggeration. But to say I've been waiting 15 million hours or years or whatever, that is an over-exaggeration, and that is a hyperbole. This is what Jesus employed here. It seems he is referring to, he's trying to get the disciples to understand something, to get a mental picture. Because when you think about holding a needle and cramming a camel through the eye of that needle, you realize what an incredibly difficult and tedious and nearly impossible task that might be. One hair at a time. That would be hard. You'd either pray for the skinniest camel or the thickest needle or the, the widest eye of a needle. So what he seems to say is that people who are wealthy, when they hear the gospel have a hard time accepting it because they've never lacked anything. 
They've never needed to trust God for their finances or for favor. They have riches, they have power, they have success, they have abundance. And for a person like that whose God is their wealth, Jesus said it was easier for a camel to be threaded through the eye of a needle than for them to accept the fact that they need to be saved. Verse 26, they responded much like many of us. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And this is a legitimate question based on their understanding of wealth, which is sometimes our understanding of wealth as well. In their culture, wealth was considered a blessing from God. The more wealth you had, the more God had blessed you. Jesus explained that's not the case. Wealth was just another idol that enslaves you to itself and can turn your heart from God. Verse 27, but Jesus said, what is impossible with man is impossible with God. How fitting it is for Jesus to make this statement. It was used when God told Abraham and Sarah they would have a son in their old age. The same phrase is used when Gabriel told Mary uh, at the announcement of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And now here, Jesus uses it. Just when the disciples thought the most blessed people on the planet would struggle to get into heaven, Jesus let them know that God can do things that we think are impossible. Only God can perform the kind of heart surgery necessary to help us unclench our hands and live with an open hand with what he gives us. Verse 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Peter was often the spokesperson for the group. Peter was a bit of a hothead. He was, he was the, uh, the extrovert. When something needed to be said, when something needed to be done, it was Peter that would volunteer to do it or say it. Sometimes it was not the best and most appropriate thing, but sometimes it was great. For instance, remember the story where Jesus is walking on water and the disciples are in the storm and they are afraid and they say, it's a ghost. And Peter looks out and he says, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come. And he steps and Jesus says, come. And so Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on water because he thinks if Jesus can do it, I can do it. And that's the way we should think. But then the waves of the storm began to come towards him and he began to be afraid as any of us would have been. And we we criticize Peter for being afraid because he began to sink. And we often think about Peter, shame on you, Peter. Why did you doubt? And we forget about the other 11 disciples that didn't even have the faith to step out of the boat. Peter was the one who swung the sword and cut off the ear of one of the priest's uh, high priest's servants when Jesus is being arrested. Peter speaks up. Peter speaks up on the day of Pentecost to the group. So when there's something to be said or done, Peter is usually the one to do it. 
And he reminds Jesus, we've left our homes to follow you. Jesus had just encouraged the man, this rich young man, to live a life of sacrifice. And Peter chimed in that they are living that out on a daily basis. They had given up their vocations. They had given up their families, their comfort for a life on the road with Jesus. Verses 29 through 30, it says, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times, many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus reminded them that great sacrifice for God's kingdom is always met with reward. At times, we are called to sacrifice our dearest possessions or our closest relationships to pursue God's calling. And not everyone is willing to follow God's calling. Not everyone is willing to count the cost. Not everyone will be excited for you as you step out into God's will. Often people think about how it impacts them and what they have to give up for you to be obedient to the will of the Lord. They won't be able to see you as often. You're taking their grandkids across country or off to a foreign country. And some people are not willing to give that up. But you have to determine that there is no sacrifice too great which God will not reward. We'll ask our worship team to come up. Matthew and Mark end this passage with the phrase, but many who are first will be last and the last first. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached on a great reversal of perception. He preached about a paradigm shift. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. It was all about this reversal of a mentality. And Jesus called his disciples, he called all of us who will be his disciples, to be last place people. If Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others, then we are called to nothing less than that. Wealth is not a means for building your own kingdom. It is a means for building his. Wealth is not a tool for you to become famous. It's a tool to make him famous. And if God has given you wealth, he will hold you accountable for what you did with it. Did you live greedily and use your wealth for your own benefit? Or did you live with an open hand and use it for his glory and his benefit? Being wealthy isn't a sin. Making your wealth an idol that you serve is a sin. Don't fall into the wealth trap. Everything you have has been given to you by God for his purposes. And so when God speaks to you to give something, You have to decide whether you're going to give it away. 
On two occasions, God has given me amazing guitars or given me the money to get these amazing guitars. And I love playing the guitar and I've played the guitar for a long time. And so when I see, when I saw this one guitar and I, I was like, uh, I, I knew how much it was worth. And I was pretty sure that pawn shop owner didn't know how much it was worth. And because it wasn't in any book where he could research it, he just said, I'll, I'll sell it to you for $350. I emptied my bank account. You remember the story of the person who finds the treasure buried in the field. He sells everything he has to buy that field because he knows the treasure in that field is worth more than everything else he has. And so I emptied my bank account and I bought that guitar because I knew that guitar was worth thousands of dollars. And I had that guitar, took it everywhere I went, showed it to my friends who were guitarists, probably to make them a little jealous Look at what I have. Look at this. Look at me holding this. Isn't this awesome? Aren't you jealous? Don't you wish you were cool like me? And it didn't take long for the Lord to begin to deal with me about that. And for the Lord to realize that he couldn't trust me with something that was that valuable. Not yet. And so the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, I want you to give that guitar away. This was an incredibly rare guitar, one of only 1,000 ever made. And I said, Lord, surely you must be speaking to someone else. The Lord said, no, I'm speaking to you. I want you to give that guitar away and here's who I want you to give it to. And I said, Lord, did you give this guitar to me for, to be a blessing to me? Or did you give this guitar to me for me to be a blessing to someone else? And he said, you already know the answer to that question. And I gritted my teeth and, because I didn't want to let go of the idol. I didn't want to let go of this thing that meant a lot to me. Having that guitar wasn't a sin, but when I allowed that guitar to be used for sin, to incite jealousy among other people, to draw attention to myself. Remember what I said earlier, Jesus will not allow 1% of an idol's place in our life if we aim to serve him 100%. And so he asked me to give it up. And in that moment, I obeyed. You may be faced with a similar situation where the Lord has blessed you and you have possessions and you have material wealth and there's nothing wrong with it, it's not a sin. But when it begins to take root in your heart, when you begin to think more about your wealth than the kingdom, more about how you can build more wealth for yourself than how you can be more, uh, be a bigger investor in the kingdom of God, then wealth has become an idol and God will begin to speak to you. You've got to let go of the control of that. When we say that Christ is the center of our lives, when we say to him that nothing is off limits to him, when we surrender all and all we have for him to use and, and everything that we have for him to use as he sees fit, it's the freest place to be. Because when I give things away with the right attitude, 
and in obedience to God, I know he's going to replace those things. And a lot of times he's replaced them with better things. And I've learned how to handle that so that those things don't become idols. That everything I have is his. And when he says, I want you to give that away, there's no hesitation. You just do it. Because I know that God wants to be a blessing to that person because he's already been a blessing to me and I trust that he's going to continue to take care of my needs according to his abundant riches. And so everything I have is for him to use as he sees fit. I don't have to worry about his provision. I don't have to worry about if I'll have enough. I don't have to worry about anything. When we're fully surrendered to him, we know that he is for us. And as Paul wrote in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? But I'd like to correct Paul's statement for us to understand, since God is for us, who can be against us? The worship team is going to lead us in a final song this morning. I want you to let the words of the song sink into your spirit. He is for you. Surrender yourself wholly to him. And since he is for you, who can be against you? Worship with us this morning.